0: I'm Carla Nappy, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Jonathan Reynolds about his new book, Allegories of Time and Space, Japanese Identity in Photography and Architecture. This came out with the University of Hawaii Press in 2015, and it's a gorgeous book that really weaves together very organically text and images in a way that makes both of them really crucial for the argument that the book um, is producing. Now, what Jonathan does over the course of several chapters is he brings us into case studies, each of which focuses on a particular constellation of problems regarding tradition, identity, Japanese-ness, and some kind of visualization and some form of visualization of an object or objects or people or a place that is used as a way to document and work through these issues. So he brings us into some really fascinating photography, some photo books, um, some works of architecture, there's advertisements here, there are works of writing. There's a lot of different kinds of media that are brought to bear in an overall um, exploration of the ways that these um, scholars and writers and ar- authors and artists are dealing with a kind of identity crisis and issues of Japaneseness in the post-war period. Now, over the course of the interview, um, which is, I think, oddly appropriate for a book on architecture and building and built structures, you'll hear, I hope um, it's not too bad, but you'll hear some construction noise um, coming from whatever the builders are doing in the apartment right above me um, that happened in the course of our interview. So um, persevere through that, What Jonathan is saying is absolutely worth persevering for. Um, I'm sorry for the little um, construction noise. Um, ambiance that has been created by this interview Um, and thank you so much for um, for your patience with it so I hope you enjoy the interview despite the hammering and the construction noise and try to experience it as a kind of sonic um, uh, another kind of sonic text that is contributing to our overall conversation about home, built structures, environments, and experiences thereof. So with that, I will leave you to the interview and um, to my thanks and my gratitude for joining us again. Enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Jonathan Reynolds about his new book, Allegories of Time and Space. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Jonathan, and thanks very much for making time to speak with me today.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me to participate in your series. Of
0: course. It's, a, it's not only a thoughtful book, but it's also a very beautiful book. And it's a book that is, I think, very um, careful in its use of photographs and text and in creating an experience for the reader um, that's really about an intimate move to and from um, these different media. And so I really, um, I loved the experience of reading it. I loved the book. And I'm really happy to talk with you about it today. Well, thank you. So along those lines, um, let's get started by talking a little bit about how you came to the field and then the project. So uh, to start off with, how did you come to work on Japan and to focus on the art and architecture of Japan specifically?
1: Well, I mean, I had an awareness of Japan from a variety of different experiences uh, as a child, but as an undergraduate, I hung out with the wrong crowd and folks were really interested in East Asian stuff and they, you know, come on in, the water's warm. And so I started taking classes and I, uh, in my senior year, switched from a major in sociology to a major in East Asian studies. And uh, at that point, I was not doing very much art history. I did two classes on Japan, but that was about it. Um, and my thesis was on the allied occupations policies towards Japanese labor union development a little a little far removed and It was only in graduate school that uh, with an acceleration of my classes in art history that i uh, switched over and when I was looking at art history as a potential uh <clears throat> future um there too uh, you know we 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 always get history is prequel or something um Uh, I had always had an interest in architecture, even as a kid checking out books on Wright and Breuer and whatnot, and somehow the the two sets of interests in Japan and in architecture came together in graduate school, so a little on the late side.
0: So the book that we're talking about today opens up by introducing the embrace of Japan or the, the embrace by Japan of modernization and its struggle with identity since the middle of the 19th century, and it focuses in particular on the identity crisis, as you um, call it early in the book, that really peaked during the Asia-Pacific War, the consequences of that um, in the post-war period. What you do in the book, and and this is, um, again, I think we'll talk a lot about this, Um, it's really uh, quite beautifully done, is the book is focusing on photography and architecture as media for working out some key issues and working through some key issues. Um, Ideas of tradition, ideas of home and a longing for it. Um, The use of photography and architecture as kinds of evidence, right, to support um, or to undermine claims about these issues and so on and so forth. And we'll talk about the details at length in the hour to come. So can you talk a little bit about how you came to this particular project? Why um, the post-war period and why these particular media as ways of working through these identity issues?
1: Well, my main focus, uh, up until this project had been modern Japanese architecture. And the starting point for this project was actually the, uh, chapter on Watanabe Yoshio's photographs of Ise Shrine and his collaboration with the architect Tange Kenzo. And, uh, that was my first baby step into the, uh, at least in a professional, uh, capacity as, uh, working on photography. And, um, Originally, this project was going to look very different. Um, the Issei chapter was definitely going to be one of the foundations. I knew I was going to be doing something with the female urban nomad and urbanism in the 70s and 80s. But I thought I was going to be doing very different chapters, uh, all on architecture. And um, working on Watanabe's wonderful photographs of Issei kind of seduced me. And when I was invited to participate in a multi-year conference in England a few years um, into all of this, uh, I did a a, a, a presentation on Hamaya Hiroshi's photographs of snow country. And somehow, uh, while working on that, it just occurred to me that I was uh, addressing some of the same overarching themes, but doing so in different media and thought that it might be fun to shift the the axis a little bit and make those themes the, the, the backbone to the book and um, bring in more photography and let let go some of the chapters that were going to be on architectural problems.
0: So uh, according to um, what, what you're telling us in the introduction, and I find this very compelling and also very interesting as a historian who – Um, spends a lot of time thinking about sources and documentary evidence and different kinds of evidence. Mm -hmm. Photo books were really important sources for this study, and you take us through several examples of them in different chapters. So maybe can you kind of bring us into the project, and and we can lay a foundation for the chapters to come, by talking a little bit about that, about the use of photographs, um, or not photographs, rather photo books, for the kind of work you're doing here.
1: Yeah. Well, s- several of the photographers who are discussed in the book uh would uh show their images in a variety of venues, some you know mainstream art like galleries and so on, but many of them come out of a tradition of photojournalism and were publishing in photo magazines and and the like um from as early as the 1930s uh onward. Watanabe did so Hamaya did so. Tomatsu, you know, in the later generation did so. Uh, but, uh, throughout this period, uh, photo books played an especially important role. Uh, they had broader reach than small elite galleries somewhere in, you know, small alleys of Ginza would have had. And, um, uh, one could even argue that this the special importance of photo books or circulating photographs um in Japan is is one of its distinctive one of the distinctive characteristics of its market and and systems of circulation and um these photo books are uh, uh compelling for several reasons uh, for one uh they often have uh, a single author, even if there's collaboration with publishers and so on, and uh, uh, therefore often have a certain coherence—not necessarily thematic coherence, but as certain stylistic or motivational coherence to them—and uh, uh, they uh, uh, really function in a variety of ways in 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 the photo world in Japan. Um, uh, they they certainly don't all look alike. A comparison with some of Thomas Shome's rather gritty uh, photo books of the 1960s look very different than Hamaya Hiroshi's uh, Snow Country, but they—they uh, uh, they each, in their own way, has a it, it represents a, a kind of coherent. Viewpoint or or set of themes for each of the uh, primary photographers in the books. So, um, I, I uh, uh, you know, in some cases I've been able to interview some of these photographers. But in in lieu of that, having a document that that ha- has a a uh, an unusually large role for the author photographer, where you aren't trying to filter out the role of uh, a publisher or publicist and all the other people that are often producers of of, uh, published images uh, allows me to make claims about motivations and so on that might not be possible uh, in a collection put together by an editor with 30 photographers in it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So it's, it's one of the reasons, at least, that I, on top of that, the individual photo books I've focused on are just extraordinary documents so uh you know it they they, they uh, uh call attention to themselves for that reason as well
0: and one of the really fascinating things about these photogra- uh, photo books rather is that you're calling attention to the architecture of these books in a way mm-hmm. that's um really resonant with the attention yeah. to and the attentiveness to the architecture of built structures so there's also yeah. an architecture right in terms of the layout and the paragraph. <coughs> and yeah. we'll talk about that um, and yeah. elements of that in the moments to come But let's get to one of the works you've already mentioned, which is this collection of photographs about snow country. So this is something that's dealt with in the first chapter, um, which focuses on the photographer Hamaya Hiroshi. He was the first Japanese photographer, as you tell us in this chapter, to join the International Photo Collective Magnum Photo. He's um, a very well-known and very, very important photographer. And he had an early career that was focused on depicting Tokyo street life. Now, you situate your discussion of these early photos of street life within a broader consideration of the relationship between photography and ethnography, and the exploration of photography as a kind of documentary medium for Mm -hmm. photographers in this period. So, can you maybe start us off um, in encountering his work by talking a little bit about that? Photography is a Mm -hmm. kind of documentary medium.
1: Yeah, um, well... uh The very earliest work um, that Hamaya participated in is uh, quite familiar photojournalism. His editor would say, go out and take photographs of the uh, dance halls and theaters of uh, uh, Asaksa. You know, and so he'd go out and he'd do a series of photographs of Asaksa and they'd print eight or ten of them. Um, And um so there there uh, you know some of his his interest in focusing on these these tight subjects photo halls of asakusa or flea markets or whatever comes from uh, uh, an editor but uh in hamaya's particular case he runs into uh ethnographers both professional and amateur uh at a critical stage in his life when he's sort of getting a little bit restless and looking for new ideas and so the the, the predisposition he has to look at uh, street life or daily life gets reinforced gains a kind of uh, intellectual armature through his interaction with this world of of minzokugaku or you know study of the people um, that was uh, of significance uh, in the in the late 1930s and 1940s Uh, and um, uh, he's by no means uh, the the only photographer uh, who will become very interested in in that particular uh, tradition or lineage uh, and use it as a way to be thinking about personal identity and cultural identity more broadly Uh, uh, now uh, this is a one could call this a kind of self-ethnography uh, if you will it, uh, for at least Hamaya uh, w- w- sort of one of the uh, originary thinkers is Yanagita Kunio uh, and uh, several of the people he works with at least initially in their careers saw Yanagita as, as a mentor and model and uh, Yanagita um, was was uh, has a rather interesting relationship to a his subject. Uh, historically, uh, a lot of anthropology, ethnography, uh, as it developed in Europe, was about other people. You know, it was about um, uh, it, it was was made possible through uh, a, a profound perceived distance between the observer and uh, subjects, uh, often in colonial uh, settings, uh, and Yanagita uh while there is a there is a city versus country or elite versus um, um uh non elite uh dimension to Yanagiji's tradition, there is a self conscious assertion that those people are us um and and so Hamaya uh, through this thinking is able to make the leap from being a city kid raised on the streets of Tokyo to being uh, a, an observer of a quite you know, dramatically different uh, way of life in the countryside of northeastern Japan but yet being capable of claiming that life not as profoundly foreign and, and exotic but as a, a sort of um, uh, uh, kind, kind of ur japanese as as a discovery of self.
0: Now, in um, so these <clears> photographs <throat> that you're um, mentioning, just for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the chapter, these are part of a project he began in 1940 to <laughs> photograph rituals that celebrated the little new year in the snow country of northern Japan. And these depictions are really striking and really quite Beautiful, and this is again an opportunity for me to mention one of the um, things that I really love about the book, which is you're really giving us tons and tons of images that aren't just illustrations, but that are um, you're sort of helping us learn to read these images, um, these photographs and other kinds of documentary um, image materials as ways of understanding um, what the text is arguing, and, and and as texts that are themselves making arguments, and these images. Um, that Hamaya is producing are quite beautiful and are part of this larger story. So he's describing his project um, in terms that um, are resonant with what you've just mentioned as his return to Japan. Right? He described this in mm-hmm. terms of a return to Japan. This mm-hmm. is a kind of nostalgia that's coming out of these photographs for um, what you described here as something like an authentic Rural past and all of these words um, for listeners are open to um, debate and conversation and interpretation. Right, that he's not kind of where the book is not taking for granted that there is something called an authentic rural past. Right, that he's hooking up into. It's about the creation of these concepts um, as well as their um, their uh, use. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the really interesting things happening here, since we've already talked a bit about um, this really phenomenal collection um, of photographs. Um, is you're bringing us into the importance of paratexts, right? Um, So understanding how to encounter these photographs when they're published in um, like a book on, uh, or when they're published in one format versus when they're published together in one of these photo books is to understand the ways that the architecture and the context of these photo books really can transform the meaning of these images. So can you talk a little bit about that in this context, the importance of paratexts and, and the building or the built structure of the book of these photographs um, for how we understand what he was doing?
1: Well, I, um, I argue that this document, uh, the Snow Country book by Hamaya, uh, is participating in two very distinct genres. One is uh, a kind of ethnography and one is uh, fine art photography. And uh, I think paratexts are uh, a way of uh, preparing the reader, shaping the reader's experience to um, to read the core materials, whether they're texts or images, um, in in a, in a particular fashion. And so, when you look at the fact that this book was produced with the photogravure. Process a high quality re- reduction process. That it was in a you know it had a nice box dust cover. It had um, uh, a rather elegant, elegant, understated uh, title page. Um, all of these, all of these elements, and the 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 not suppression but the sequestra- uh, sequestration of the text toward the back, most of the text towards the back of the book. Um, uh, serve to highlight the images as uh, art images. Uh, And yet, the caption at the beginning of the book, the nature of those texts, even as they appeared toward the end, most of them appeared toward the end of the book, would also signal that Hamaya did have this ethnographic project in mind, uh, responding to... Um, uh, the ideas of some of his n- newly uh, acquired mentors uh, in the amateur ethnography field, uh, he did see these images as aesthetically shaped and as beautifully printed as they were as being documents that would preserve um, for um, Japanese of future generations, uh, a way of life that he and his um, colleagues were um, uh, feared might disappear very quickly. A kind of salvage ethnography. Uh, so that uh, the, the, the uh, I think those paratexts, those that choice of of um, uh, you know beautiful crimson seal on, on the on the uh, title, uh, the presentation of of the you know, fine quality printing and so on, combined with these ethnographic signals, make the book, make the experience of the book do double duty.
0: Now, of course, context is also really important for the way (coughs) that you are presenting his work. And one of the important points you mentioned here is something I won't ask you to talk too much about, but I just want to mark for listeners um, that contextualizing this book within a broader context of wartime photography, both his own engagement with wartime photography and, you know, the kinds of images he's producing and the conversation about wartime photography is really important for understanding what's happening in the Snow Country book, in part for um, bringing our attention to what's not there, right? Mm -hmm. and That that (laughs) absence becomes a presence when we understand the book in this larger context.
1: Yeah. Now, I, you know, I don't want to uh, try and um, whitewash Hamaya's uh, participation in the world of propaganda-oriented photography with very different paratexts, uh, such as his con- contributions to the uh, famous or notorious magazine Front, but uh, it really is striking that that, um, given this other part of his career at exactly the same time, it is, it is extraordinary that the the war never seems to enter in at all. And I think that's a very self-conscious decision on his part and signals to us, uh, at least to some extent, what the meaning of this world was for him personally as well as professionally or um, uh, broadly more socially.
0: So as we move to the next chapter, we move to another engagement with the um, problem of Japanese identity and Japanese-ness, and this is um, a chapter that looks at the work of Okamoto Taro. Now, he was known for his painting, sculpture, writing, and he had very kind of avant-garde practices that were related to um, his training, his experience, his interest in um, with what was going on in Europe. Now, he was interested in defining tradition, and I have, I'm using my little scare quotes here. You can't see them, but hopefully you can, you can hear them, um, such that, as you put it in this chapter, it's eliminating the gap between modern Japan and its pre-modern past. And the nature of his engagement with that pre-modern past is very much a focus of what's happening here. So he writes an essay in 1952 about Jomon ceramics. Um, so why don't we maybe enter into this part of the book and its arguments um, with a little exploration of what's going on here. What are Jomon ceramics? Why is he so fascinated with them? And, and, and uh, what's important for us to know about them?
1: Okay. Well, the Jomon ceramics are ceramics that were produced in a, um, an archaeological horizon that the, the dates of which are constantly shifting beneath our feet. Um, probably most people right now would date Uh, Jomon to around 12,000 BCE to around 800, 600 uh, uh, BCE. Um, Traditionally, both of those dates were moved forward a little bit, but Yayoi, the subsequent archaeological period, has been moved back further, and there have been uh, confirmed finds that are associated with Jomon that are older than we had originally thought so but all that said um so uh artifacts of a culture that are as remote for okamoto as as any he could have found and um what i what I find interesting in okamoto okamoto um uh was uh Floating in uh, surrealist circles in Paris in the late 1930s has to leave Paris on the eve of the Nazis' entry into Paris, in part because he was worried that his associations with certain leftists uh, might... Make his presence in Paris um, problematic, um, so he he has uh, at least to some degree uh, left leaning credentials, and as an intellectual trying to find his footing in the immediate post war period, he does something very interesting. He um, uh, th- th- there's a passage in Lewis Mumford's The Brown Decades about uh, each generation making war with its father's generation and em- embracing its grandfather's generation and uh if you will jomon gave okamoto the leverage to uh firmly break with the period of militarism from which japan was just emerging and uh find a way to be japanese and yet not participate in the cultural chauvinism and the uh you know the oppressive politics of the immediate you know, the immediately previous period. Um, So he's not making uh, alliances with his grandfather's generation. He's making alliances with his (laughs) great-great-great-grandfather's generation. Um, uh, And um, I I think it's a really very interesting strategy. And uh, it, it, it moves him so far back in history that he can, especially given the archaeological evidence available at that time, and even today, though we, th- th- there has been a lot of activity, a lot of archaeological activity since the 1950s, um, he could make of Jomon what he needed to make it. So um, while there had been a history for a number of generations of, of uh, for instance, claiming the Jomon as the Ur-Japanese, uh, uh, or making the Jomon the people prior to the were Japanese, who were the subsequent Yayoi. You know, there are all these very complicated cultural politics around the embrace or rejection of these two major archaeological um, horizons: um, Jomon and Yayoi. Um, he's able, for example, in a very interesting way, to assert that no, the Yayoi isn't or Japanese uh the it, it is a combination of the jomon and yayoi that make japanese culture what it is right mm-hmm. there's this and, and and so it it's a way to if you will claim a kind of cultural diversity
0: mm-hmm.
1: um through kind of this this Navigation of these 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 very early um, these very early cultural traditions um, that allows him to work through his very contemporary 1950s politics um, through through this kind of cultural engagement.
0: Now, one of the really interesting things that's happening in his work and in your discussion of his work is he's invoking dimensionality, right? Uh, Throughout this book, um, we have been and will be talking about time and space and the kind of dimensionality that way, but it invokes a fourth dimension. So this essay he writes in 1952 is on Jomon Ceramic's dialogue with the fourth dimension. Now, this fourth dimension of Jomon culture, as he describes it, is very intimately related to magic. And this becomes important in terms of how um, the chapter understand his work for many reasons. But one of those reasons is um, he's making a kind of analogy here between or an allegory here, right, that relates (laughs) contemporary artists to prehistoric hunter gatherers. And and the, the way you describe it here, these hunter gatherers courageously tackled some of the most vital problems of their society through magical intervention. So let's talk about magic. What's Mm -hmm. going on there?
1: Well, um, uh, here too, I think you can find roots in his experiences of the 1930s. Uh, As most historians of Okamoto uh, point out, he studied it. Uh, took classes uh, along with his surrealist friends at the Sorbonne and other um, uh, institutions in Paris and studied under Marcel Moss. And um, of course, Moss is famous for his work on magic uh, and uh, was you know familiar with Eliade and with a number of other um, intellectuals active in that Parisian um, environment in the 30s through the 50s. And um, uh, you know the idea here is that uh that the role of magic in prehistoric societies was not gratuitous magic was a way to establish a spiritual relationship between the hunters and their prey
0: mm-hmm.
1: that this this is the fundamental source of this, you know, of this, of, of food, this is, this is the foundation of the culture. Otherwise folks would starve. (laughs) And, um, and so, uh, this, this, uh, the role of, of, of shaman and, and others who participated in magic were playing a Uh, an absolutely essential role, and there the analogy uh, with the artist comes into play, that the the contemporary artist is, in some sense, as gratuitous as the activity may seem to some, um, uh, exploring the spiritual dimension of society at a time of tremendous crisis. He is living in the midst of the Cold War here. And Japan is, of course, in a very precarious position in that relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. And um, uh, and so through their exploration of this other realm, call it magic or something else, art, uh, artists are um, uh, really playing a vital role in um, uh, helping preserve culture and 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 even the survival of the of the species um so i think that's one of the allegories that that okamoto is is playing with here uh and um uh he will make explicit connections between that spiritual realm of of uh, the prehistoric Jomon people and the, the, ex, the extraordinary ceramics, these wildly uh, dynamic ceramics, particularly associated with middle Jomon of northeastern Japan um, and uh, this this whole other realm of, of, of sort of spiritual travel and so on on the part of the shaman and and, and then making a, a very interesting, explicit comparison between these wildly extravagantly decorated um, uh, mid jomon vessels and the most contemporary avant-garde sculpture is <laughs> mm-hmm. a and, and so it's 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 a, it's a pretty wild claim i mean he's 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 comparing these jomon vessels with giacometti and and uh, gonzalez and, and other uh, You know, artists who are exact contemporaries of his. Right. So.
0: Right. And and so that is a super fascinating um, case study, but that's not the only one. And that's not the last one. And it moves from that into, um, or the book moves from that into a chapter on an equally fascinating case study. And this is one that you've mentioned um, as really one of the seeds of the project as a whole. This is the study of photographs um, and a book of photographs on the Issei Shrine. So chapter three focuses on the Issei Shrine and brings us early on into the history of ways that the shrine has been um, imaged and has been understood prior to the 20th century and into the early 20th century. And it looks at a seminal publication that represented the collaborative work of several key artists and scholars, and one of them is this fascinating photographer, Watanabe Yoshio. Now, speaking of spiritual travel, which I think you just were talking about in the context um, of the work that we've been describing from chapter two, there's also a kind of spiritual travel that happens through the photography of Watanabe of the Issei Shrine. And you bring us into um, the work that he did for this book of photography that um, was published ultimately by MIT Press, Issei Prototype of Japanese Architecture. And show us how the ways that he's imaging this shrine create a kind of pilgrimage experience for the reader and then kind of bring the reader or the viewer into (coughs) this sort of intimate spaces, these sacred spaces of the shrine that otherwise um, they wouldn't necessarily have access to. So let's talk about these photographs. What for Mm -hmm. you is particularly important and powerful about the experience of these photographs for readers in the production by the photographer? Okay.
1: Well, uh, you know, it's, uh, Watanabe's work is is quite diverse. Uh, he, uh, early on in his career in the 1930s, uh, did some street photography of the type I was describing, contributed to some of those, um, those uh, partially state-sponsored publications of the late 30s. And uh, m- many of his photographs of architecture were of modernist uh, milestones, uh, designs by Horiguchi-Stemi and others.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you could argue that the photography is somehow a neutral medium for the the documentation, uh, the objective documentation of these photographic, I mean, uh, these architectural monuments at Ise Shrine. Um, and yet I argue that that there are certain strategies that Watanabe himself um, Engages in, and there are ways in which the context, the texts by Watanabe, by by Tange and by Kawazoe, the architectural critic Kawazoe Noboru, um, uh, further uh, these images, not uh, not that anything can be a neutral representation of anything else, but uh, further a, a particular. Um reading of essay through these photographs that do some important work. so on the one hand, you have you have these um sort of parallel readings you you have the reader entering into this book, you know wanting at some level to. From afar, experience this um, sacred site that has historically been closed off from viewers. Even to this day, you can't approach past an outer fence into the inner compound um, a- unless you're the emperor. And um, I don't know too many emperors myself. <laughs> um, so, so, th- so it, it's a way to um, to a- approach, the, uh, imagine uh, virtually approach th- this. Uh, architecture, which is to some degree sheltered and, and sequestered, uh, through the photographs. But at the same time, the photographs are presented to the viewer in such a fashion that um, they are reinforcing certain ideas about architecture not present to the book, um, contemporary architecture. Watanabe's col- uh, two collaborators are Tange Kenzo, who at the time was at the height of his career as one of the most aggressive proponents of high modernist design, and Kawazoe Noboru, this important architectural journalist who for a period early in his career was publishing with the modernist architectural magazine Shinkenshiku. <laughs> so so you, you have both this, this fantasy that you are approaching the shrine as an ancient pilgrim, through the photographs, and at the same time, through the photographs, experiencing the shrine as, uh, in some sense, a modernist architectural document that not only gives you a new appreciation of those buildings, but reinforces uh, certain arguments outside the book for the value of modernist architecture writ large. Does that, does that begin to do what you're... I mean, absolutely, no, yeah. absolutely.
0: And, and I think um, similarly to the way that we were talking about absences um, being really meaningful in, in other kinds of um, works that we've discussed as well, here what the book is not doing is really, really important as well. So you um, in this early history of the East Shrine, what had happened and you describe this is it becomes a kind of a very, very powerful nationalist imperial symbol. And so the fact that the kind of re-evaluation of the shrine or the re-depiction as an example of modernist aesthetics um, is not doing that other work, right? becomes yeah. really important. So um, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I argue that um, you know, just as Okamoto Taro was trying to get past the immediate the the debacle of the war through his embrace of jomon that um that watanabe tange and kawazoe were in a way able to reclaim their japanese heritage uh, without participating in the wartime of uh, uh, jingoism uh, find a way to have a Japanese tradition that wasn't about recent militarism, but at the same time um, uh, uh, make these buildings that had once been uh, very powerful political symbols. Uh, Ise Shrine became the kind of center point, uh, the 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 the, 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 uh, the 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 core of of a of a version of Shinto um, that was heavily um, sponsored by the military government um, the, the, and Watanabe Zentange's vision of this issei, um m- you know m- makes no mention of it what it does is it makes it into a modernist document which seems to be the antithesis of the parochial uh, jingoist vision of japanese that had uh, been so uh, widely um, propagandized during the war and, and in order to do that, as you've said, uh, th- you know, the, the, the war just gets set aside and we see Issei as a pre-war non-military tradition, but also as modernism, the, 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 one of the targets of at least some of the um, uh, nationalist rhetoric of, of the 30s and 40s.
0: Now, the war is very much not set aside, or at least the immediate consequences of the war as we move to the next chapter. And this is a chapter that looks at the post-war photography of Tomatsu Shomei. Now, this is a chapter that focuses in particular on the photography um, that Tomatsu is um, producing from his travels in Okinawa. And very, um, the, the collection of photographs that he produces as a result of his first foray into an experience in Okinawa during the context of allied occupation um, is extraordinarily powerful. And this is a book called Okinawa, Okinawa, Okinawa. Can you talk about the photos that are collected in this book? And for you, what's most important um, and fascinating about these photos and the work that they're doing?
1: Okay. Well, uh, Tomatsu entered into this project with a very um, c- compelling political agenda. He was living in a Japan that was completely uh, s- situated within the U.S. nuclear umbrella. He was working at a time when the United States was using Japan as a, stopping, a stop-off point, um, r and location and so on and so forth, even an arsenal, for the conduct of their war in Vietnam and uh the presence of a very unbenign presence of the united states was was visible in uh uh, uh base towns all over japan he goes to okinawa because Okinawa had the highest concentration to this very day has the highest concentration of U.S. military bases anywhere in Japan, and so if you, you know, he had he 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 had been pursuing this theme of the the very problematic presence of the United States in Japan, turning Japan almost into a kind of cultural colony of the United States and political colony of the United States. Uh, it takes him to, it takes him to Okinawa, and he that that um, that sense of you know frustration and anger is there from the very beginning of the project because you know as he arrives in uh naha airport he sees on one of the bulletin boards uh these passport photographs dozens of them you know oh well we you know th- th- these are and he takes that it appears in many of his collections of photographs of okinawa including this book mm-hmm. and he sort of sees them almost as mugshots and he sort of sees it, it, he has to get a special permission as a Japanese citizen to enter into Japanese national territory. I mean, the fact that Jap- okinawa is Japanese national territory is a problematic history of itself. But nonetheless, and and so from the very beginning there is this anger, and so this anger is I think very articulately exp- ar- articulately expressed through um, first of all uh, a very very gritty black and white photography that um, uh, does not have the a sort of elegance of uh, something like the Snow Country uh, f- uh, photo book uh, that uh, has uh, photographs bleeding right out to the edge, a very kind of bold, hard look. And these photographs themselves are images of prostitutes soliciting uh, work from U.S. Uh, soldiers, uh, soldiers wandering around the streets looking for sex, um, uh, Images of uh, U.S. military hardware, including, I think, 11 separate photographs of B-52 bombers, which were especially notorious because they were sometimes armed with nuclear weapons, which the United States denied had ever entered Japanese soil. But we now know in um, retrospect that they had. So, uh, you know, all these various ways of using photographs as a way to document the impact uh, of the U.S. presence uh, in Japan. And it, so it's not just the content, it's these blurry, dark, gritty uh, photographs that convey something of that emotional response to Okinawa's conditions under U.S. occupation.
0: So he's interested, as you um, just described, in the possible presence of nuclear weapons um, in Okinawa. He's also interested in race and the kind of racial dynamics of the American yeah. occupation. So there's a really, really interesting part of this chapter that looks in particular at his photos of Nakamoto Shoko mm-hmm. um, and, sort of ha- and understands through the yeah. reading of those photos – how he is interested in and in dealing with issues of race um, and trying to do, and trying to you know, convey that in these photographs. Now yeah. you describe Okinawa um, as it emerges from this particular connection as a Benjaminian allegory, as a lost Arcadia left in ruins by American imperialism, but one that still held out the possibility of redemption. Sure. Now this is one of many um, points throughout the book where Benjamin and his work um, becomes really important um, for the kind of argumentative work that the chapter is doing. So could you say just a little bit about that for you? Yeah. What's been, yeah. What's the importance of here?
1: Well, you know, Benyamin's, uh, uh, discusses allegory in a number of places, including the arcades project, but, but he, perhaps the m- single most important text for his exploration of allegory is his, his uh, examination of Baroque, uh, tragedy. And, um, you know that that whole tradition uh is informed with uh uh christian faith and the the worse things get somehow one is still aware of the possibility of redemption you know in 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 in, in the most you know at the uh, nadir of 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 uh, any given plot there is somehow a possibility that things could be Transformed, um, and uh, I, I used th- this image of of uh, uh, Benjamin's description of ruin as as both ruin as a, a memento mori about you know d- destruction and so on, but also as something that reminds us of the possibility of redemption, uh, because uh, Tomatsu is. Uh, uh, documenting this place that many people think of as a kind of tropical paradise. And yet in this tropical paradise, all Tomatsa seas are these roadways that are filled with uh, recklessly driven jeeps by uh, uh, driven by uh, U.S. military, um, barbed wire fences, uh, american weaponry, a constant threat of the impact of nuclear weapons and nuclear submarines that are pouring um, you know radioactive materials into the waters and poisoning the fish in the area. I mean it's a sense of utter ruin. This paradise that is utter ruin, but a paradise that could return to a um a a uh, a a state of grace if you will through um the removal of the us military
0: mm-hmm. and, sorry
1: no uh, go ahead
0: oh and in fact i was just going to mention um he actually goes back to okinawa after the occupation leaves and the depictions that he has in the, in that later series of photographs um it's actually quite different right uh, oh, than the-
1: indeed Indeed. It, well, he moves back to Okinawa uh, it, it, just as soon as uh, the uh, uh, reversion occurs, as, as Okinawa's return to Japanese sovereignty, and first sets up in Naha, but then also later lives for a period of months in some of the southern islands, uh, uh, Miyako and other southern islands within the Okinawan chain. And um, th- nothing explains th- this transformation better for me than a comparison of the cover of the first book and the cover of his next Okinawa book, uh, Tayono Inpitsu. Because <laughs> you have a first cover that is a black, uh, again, a gritty black and white photograph of a missile, a U.S. missile being fired off of Japanese soil in Okinawa um, with this lurid yellow um, uh title uh, with a, a statement that uh, rather than say that there are bases on Okinawa, you should probably say that Okinawa is a, is a, is a military base, right? Pretty grim um, representation of, of the state of Okinawa under U.S. occupation. So this next book that appears a couple years after Reversion is a photograph of uh, with much softer colors for the title and with this photograph of a fisherman an Okinawan fisherman standing on a rock, looking out over this beautiful turquoise sea, just quietly, quietly fishing. Bright color, color is introduced into this volume, unlike the earlier volume, and that uh, that image of the missile being fired versus the 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 fisherman, uh, uh, over the uh, fishing over the turquoise seas, I think is is a wonderful reflection of the transformation that. Redemption, if you will. That, there's the allegorical idea that redemption that was that was um, uh, experienced through uh, reversion, or at least partial redemption uh, through reversion uh, to uh, you know the end of the U.S. occupation.
0: So as we move from chapter four to chapter five, we move from Okinawa into a very very different context, but one that is. Super, super fascinating. And this is the context of Young Female Nomads of Tokyo, as the chapter is titled. Now, this chapter takes us into (coughs) the consumer culture of the late 20th century and this figure of the Young Female Nomad. The 1970s and 1980s, as you describe early in this chapter, seem to mark a shift away from the search for, as you put it, a coherent and distinctive cultural identity that we saw in the work of previous artists. And it seems to mark a shift away from a focus on a kind of singular home, right? A notion of home that's grounded in a specific site. Notions of cultural practice that are um, focused on a particular site, but as we'll see um, over the course of our conversation about this chapter, um, that's there's there's actually something a little bit more complicated going on. Now you just you demonstrate this by taking us into the work of a number of really fascinating artists. Um, advertising, um, or people who are producing advertising mm-hmm. architects, and we won't have time to talk about all of them in detail, but I'll just mention, um, without necessarily talking in detail about it. One of the works that you bring us into is Abe Kobo's book, the Boxman, mm-hmm. um, which is really fascinating. So we can talk about that a little bit later if we have time. Um, but mm-hmm. there is some really interesting attentiveness to, um, literary uh, products that are juxtaposed with the works that I'm going to ask you to talk at more length about. And one of these works um, is a series of advertising campaigns that were produced by a designer, Ishioka Eko. Mm-hmm. Okay, so these are advertising campaigns mm-hmm. that each focus on or feature images of broadly conceived kind of nomadic um, people um, in very, very in, in regions or in areas that seem very, very different or very distant from Tokyo. Can you bring us into this project? And for you, what's most important for us to understand about this advertising, or these advertising campaigns, rather, um, for us to understand the larger work that these ads are doing in terms of the (coughs) argument of the chapter?
1: Well um the campaign that i think you're referring to she she uh, is involved in uh, an incredible array of different kinds of advertising products mm-hmm. from book covers to uh seaweed ads to uh, uh other products but the she she produced a whole series of posters for the large uh uh clothing chain, Parco, that was a part of the uh, enormous Seibu uh, um, Sessong uh, empire mm-hmm. uh, run by Tsumiseji and others. And um, uh, she, like many advertising people before her, wanted to generate a, a, a fantasy that would resonate with uh, their potential customers, who were primarily uh, young, single women, uh, th- th- though the demographics for Parco You know, go well into the 30s and 40s. A a, a, an important component, a component that they really wanted to build on, was uh, was young, uh, single women in their late teens through 20s, and uh, you know, one might have imagined an advertising campaign that. Uh, featured young um, Japanese women engaged in one uh, fashionable activity or another. Uh, but for this particular, ca- and, and actually Ishioka does do that as well, but for this particular campaign uh, that, uh, uh, that that is appearing through posters on trains, posters at the department stores and so on, uh, features um, uh, everything from um, young Maasai women uh, in East Africa, to uh, a photograph of Rene Rousseau, the the model, in the uh, deserts of California with Issey Miyake clothing, <laughs> right, and and each of them is themed in a way that um, uh, uh, alludes to this the seeming uh, freedom, you know, no you know no horizons or infinite horizons, uh, the uh, exoticness of the locations which is anything but what most young women living in Tokyo and other major urban areas in Japan would have been experiencing in their daily lives. I I can't think of a more dramatic contrast than some of the landscapes that are featured in these ads, um, or peoplescapes that are featured in these ads from the daily life of these women. And yet, um, Ishioka is remarkably successful at i mean you know given that these ads were perpetuated and and the related themes were perpetuated uh in response to them is remarkably successful at establishing a resonance between these images in you know the deserts of uh northwest india or east africa or uh california uh and uh... the lives of these young japanese women and i think a fantasy is being generated through this and other means uh, that um, these young women who uh... lived by what many outsiders would uh, perceive to be a a very disciplined button-down lives long working hours working in offices commuting day in and day out and imagining the freedom that that nomadic life seemed to promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so there, and, and there are even ways in which, you know, what is, one could make the argument that uh, these uh, e- e- young women were encouraged to begin to think of their own lives, even as they were living them in Tokyo, as nomadic lives. You know, instead of traveling across the desert, they are um, floating in a sea of subway systems, and um, instead of scavenging for, for firewood, they're wandering through... Uh, parco and other tokyo department stores and so on and so forth um and so there's uh, it's not just a kind of resonance it's a parallelism Mm -hmm. between this this fantasy of nomadic life and uh uh, life in the um the you know the commercial world of of uh, tokyo and other major japanese cities
0: and as a kind of shout out to other Silk Road studies um, scholars or people interested in Silk Road studies, this is very much part of a larger uh, fantasy about Silk Road and the Silk Road yeah. as a concept. And yeah. So we've yeah. got these urban nomads, these women, and they're you know, traveling around, they're buying stuff. Now, of course, they need a place to live. And so enter architect, architect Ito Toyo, who yeah. creates these really fascinating structures um, called pao, from the kind of Chinese um, bao um, yeah. that are kind of based on yurt sort of structures, sort of, but that yeah. are um, ostensibly you um, or could be ostensibly used as shelters for these wandering nomads. So can you tell us a little bit as we kind of come to the, um, to the conclusion of our story, yeah. let's maybe conclude yeah. with him. Um, what, what for yeah. you is so important about what he's doing?
1: Well, in some sense he's taking uh, Ishioka Echo's promise uh at its at its at its word, taking it literally, so he exhibits. Uh, Parco invited him to do an exhibition of furniture design at one of their. Uh, this is the same Parco. Actually, it was at Cebu, but uh, the, the the Parco system is very important to this entire phenomenon. But so he's invited to do an exhibition of furniture, and he 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 comes in with furniture, but he's also coming in with the the portable. Um yurt like structure to house the furniture, and this this furniture it does not look I, I mean, I've seen some very elegant yurts around, but uh, you know brush chrome, stainless steel, diaphanous, textiles covering them these are these are the most elegant yurts anywhere you will find and and so he's imagining um, you know uh, you know. Ask asking these women to to live in these portable structures as they migrate through various parts of the city in their cycle of daily life, and he has some wonderful uh, passages in which he describes the, the lives of these young women. You know the instead of having a you know permanent home with all of the appliances that we would normally think of you know he describes the seven eleven as their refrigerator <laughs> and uh you know the and the gym as as uh, as their um um uh, anyway all of the sort of elements of modern life for these young women as components of a kind of nomadic life instead of you know, living to have the freestanding uh, two-bedroom house in the suburbs that they and probably and certainly their parents dreamed of. And, and so the, these power, his contribution to that fantasy, uh, they would have these, these portable pieces of furniture and these portable uh, structures as uh, portable living arrangements as they sort of floated through their lives.
0: Now, this is actually um, for me living in Vancouver, um, and as you can probably hear from the construction noise all around, right? There's a kind of there's an analogous um, experience that I think many of us may be able to relate to, or those of us mm-hmm. who are um, living in this city or in in any city, but Vancouver is where I am, so in particular, mm-hmm. um, where you know the the rather than living in these houses where there's the you know place to exercise and a place to, um, you know, go swimming in a place to do something else. We're living in these high rises where, you know, there's a gym and there's the hot tub and pool room. And there's this sort of weird modern fantasy um, that's also uh, being created by high rise living and, you know, basi- uh-huh. you know, basing yourself in these tiny, tiny, tiny little apartments, but um, having a daily life that is extended across in a kind of rhizomatic way, the spaces mm-hmm. of the larger structure around you. Um, that's yep. reading about this architect and these structures and his, this notion of the urban nomad that he's helping create and speak to, I think for me was really resonant with contemporary city life for some <laughs> of us. And, <laughs> and you know, it like helps um, me, or at least has helped me, really look at that in a different way. So thank you for that. Cool um so at the end of this chapter there's a kind of, and, and into the afterword after, there's a sort of reversal that happens, right? It may have seemed, as it has perhaps seemed to others who have looked at these phenomena, like um, Ito Toyo's POW, his nomad restaurant, right? This sort of Silk Road themed urban nomadic advertising campaign, um, Abe Kobo's work. It may seem that, as we mentioned earlier, notions of home have really dramatically changed, um, that the whole idea of territory and Japanese ness. <laughs> Um, And cultural groundedness that so many of the other artists and architects and photographers from previous chapters were holding on to no longer applies here. But in fact, um, as you show us at the end of the book, that's probably not so true. So um, Mm -hmm. can you maybe bring us home um, by talking Mm -hmm. a little bit about that?
1: Well, uh, th- you know, the, the nomad who is looking at these, or the young female urban nomad who's not a nomad, uh, is looking at these images and imagining living on the Thar de- Desert in India, or you know, living in East Africa, or living on Morocco, or whatever. Uh, but but what is interesting is the language suggests that in going to these distant, distant places, they were discovering themselves. You know, their sort of fundamental self, their home, their spiritual home, if you will. And so even if the territory, you know, I argue that even if the territory has expanded almost infinitely, you know, we aren't talking about the core Japanese islands and adjacent small islands. We're we're talking about a kind of global um, expansion of the roaming territory. Uh, In some sense, uh, these young women looking for their sense of self and sense of home in the Moroccan desert are in some ways doing some of the same things that the Tokyo uh, kid Hamaya Hiroshi was doing when he was going off to the very different world of the snow country in northeastern Japan, and so uh, it's it's in some sense the nom- the seam the of the nomad for me is the exception that proves the rule. You know what what seems to be the abandonment of this interest in in you know a settled home and stability um, is in fact just another strategy for achieving the same some of the same goals.
0: So now that we're at the conclusion of our conversation, but not as you can uh, hopefully not hear too much, but the conclusion of the building of Vancouver and its built structures. Well, I hope it's not its conclusion.
1: (laughs) I hope Hope it has a little more
0: time. Of course, there's a ton of material in the book that we haven't had a chance to get to. It's an extraordinarily rich study. And of course, we can only talk about Images and imagistic documents that the reader will find um, there to explore in the actual medium of the book itself. So there's a lot we haven't had a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular, though, um, that you feel would be important to mention for listeners that we haven't gotten to? Well,
1: and, and uh, I, I think we've covered some of the major overarching themes. I, I, I would encourage viewers to to look at the images themselves, because the one thing that's absent from a radio interview is that you know there are some spectacular images. That you know, I take no credit for that whatsoever. But um, you know, just starting with the cover photo by Hamaya, this this wonderfully um uh, ambiguous image of a ceremony with the swirling of torches during that that series of festivals at uh, at the little new year um i'm going through um these you know, this this array of images from uh really quite elegant and pretty to gritty and hard and dark um you know the images themselves are sort of lost in this context so so uh, uh I would encourage your listeners to, 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 to spend more time looking at the images and less time listening to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so now that um, the book is out, and congratulations on a beautiful and really thoughtful book. What's next for you? What are you currently working on?
1: Well, I have a project right now. Uh, I, I've been uh, interested in a, an architect named Shinai Seiji for many years. And uh, the core of his career is the 1950s through his death in the early 1980s. And he he's at the kind of, um, in a liminal position. Uh, he is good friends with several modernists, including an architect I've written a, a, a bit about in the past, Maya Kawakunio. Uh, he's covered by a lot of the major uh, architectural ger- journalists, including um, Kawazoe, the fellow I mentioned in the context of the Issei photographs. Um, so he's fully recognized within modernist circles, but he violates an awful lot Lot of the aesthetic rules of the modernist movement and I, I'm very interested by the ways in which architects and critics attempt to negotiate um, the the um, kind of inconsistency or apparent inconsistencies or violations aesthetic violations uh, that are apparent in Shinai's work and so uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm trying to think through, you know, different uh, kind of reception, if you will, of, of Shirai talking about ways in which different architectural and critical voices have, have shaped Shirai as a way to explore some of the underlying uh, tensions within post-war Japanese architecture. Um, And there, too, you know, everybody should go Google Shirai because his buildings are just so funky and wonderful. They're hard to even describe. Um, So I'm just trying to account for that um, um, through this discussion of of his critical reception.
0: Well, best of luck with that project. It sounds great. um, And I will let you go and work on that. (laughs) So thank you so much for making time. It's really been a pleasure. And again, congratulations on a beautiful book.
1: Well, thank you for your careful reading of the book and and for your interest.
0: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.